This might be the most challenging jingle. I don't know. Just have fun. Zach, have fun. No matter what, it's going to be good. The everyone, I'm Caroline Kowalczyk, life coach and your host of the Unpurposeful Podcast. Today, I bring on an old friend that I met back in 2009 when I was studying abroad in Melbourne, Australia. Since then, we've kept in touch, and I have to say it's truly been an amazing journey to watch his journey and the work that he does today. Eduardo Harriton is an OBGYN and infertility specialist. He received his medical training at Harvard, where he completed a combined MD-MBA at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School, and his OBGYN residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts General Hospital. He is currently a clinical fellow in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of California, San Francisco, and will be joining the Reproductive Science Center of the Bay Area as a clinician and U.S. fertility as the VP of Strategic Initiatives. He combines his clinical and business backgrounds to treat patients and think creatively about how to improve the care they receive when seeking fertility services. Eduardo, thank you so much for being here today. It is so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And it's so nice we get to catch up and and revisit some memories and talk about what's happened since we were in Australia many, many years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot wait to share your journey with everybody else. So let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your journey to how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela. I lived there until I was about 15 years old. And then my parents and siblings moved to Miami and we got there in 2002 Spent a couple of years in Florida in high school, went to college at the University of Florida, um, where I studied abroad, met Caroline in Australia, and um, just had a, a great college experience. I then moved up to Boston, where I did my medical school at Harvard. And I always wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be uh, in a field where I get to help people, I get to really interact with people. I'm an extreme extrovert and being with others energized me. So I always felt like being in a high touch uh, patient care field was um, a place where I would be really stimulated uh, and excited. I also enjoy science and thinking. Um, and when I got to medical school, I, I realized that I love the patient care aspect, but I also like to stimulate other parts of my brain. And one patient at a time is really uh, a unique connection and, a, and a, a real honor that we have of having the trust of someone to take care of them or their family member at a time of need. But I felt like I wanted to do more at a systems level and I wanted to really not only make decisions that improve one person's life at a time or their families, but rather a broader system. So I, I tried to figure out what kind of other training would enable me to do that. And, and I always thought it would be public health because it's kind of the closest to medicine. But when I was looking at those kind of degrees, I always felt that the people that go to school for public health think a lot like doctors. You know, healthcare is a human right. Everybody should have access to care. 
And then I looked at the other side of the river and the business school was there. And people think very differently, right? You have to make a business case to make things work. And you have Republicans, Democrats, independents, libertarians, people from the U.S., people from abroad. And I felt like it was a place where not only would I gain very different skills that I didn't have, but I would be pushed a lot in the way that I thought about problems and approach them. So I ended up going to business school and it was a transformative experience in the way that I thought about helping people and taking care of people. I still you know, decided to go and go to residency, go to fellowship, be a physician, but I came equipped with a different set of glasses to look at the world and look at problems and a, a different way to approach them. I also was lucky enough to meet my wife there and, and we got engaged and married soon after. Uh, I finished my training in OBGYN in Boston, which, you know, if you're listening and you know everything, anything about medicine, it's four grueling years. So then we moved out to the Bay Area in 2019, where I'm finishing up my fellowship in infertility right now. Uh, we had two kids, uh, three and one now, and that's given a whole lot of meaning to the work that I do every day with couples. So it's been an incredible journey. I feel very blessed uh, for my parents' sacrifice to move to this country and give me those opportunities for my mentors along the way that have pushed me and inspired me and for my friends that have kept my extroverted self going and have given me a, a great support network. So yeah, that's a little bit about where I got to where I am today. Thank you so much for going into detail about that. From knowing you, I I also remember you sharing um, a very heartfelt story about how your grandfather was an incredible influence for you going to medical school as well. And I'd love for you to be able to share that story as well. Yeah, I actually think that you, I think you got that because you read my med school application essay when I was working on it when we were abroad. Uh, but yeah, my, my grandfather um, came to Venezuela from Eastern Europe, dirt poor, put himself through medical school. I remember he used to tell me he used to go out to the plazas to use the light bulbs at night to study because they didn't have enough money to pay for electricity at home. But he basically got himself through school, became a, a very well-known general surgeon in Venezuela. And then he always used to dedicate weeks of his time every year to go out into the middle of nowhere in the country and help people that did not have access to medicine or modern medicine for that matter. And, and that was just an inspiration. He, he worked very hard his whole life. He never wanted his children to be physicians. So my dad and his brother are not in medicine, but when I wanted to, he was very excited. And he, he was always a, a guiding light of, you know, one, the sacrifice that it takes to be a physician, but at the same time, the benefits and, and a, a true North Star of, of ethics and, and giving back to the community. So I learned a lot through watching him practice. And, and then uh, once he was retired, he was always a cheerleader on the sidelines that, that kept me going on those very long nights. Uh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's personal, but I think that it's so important for people to hear and very touching and inspirational. So Eduardo, can you tell us a little bit more about how you decided to become an expert in obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology? I know you kind of went into it with your background, but why did you decide that specific path? 
So I knew early on that I wanted to work with patients that were truly partners in their care. You know, there's a lot of preventable medicine in the U.S. And, you know, not to pick on any examples, but when you have patients that have type 2 diabetes of cardiovascular disease, they are conditions that could be managed to a certain degree by lifestyle, but patients have a very difficult time making those choices. And sometimes if you are working at a problem with a patient, but you have a very clear set of recommendations that they cannot do, I felt like over the course of my career that might become frustrated. So I always thought I would be a medical oncologist because cancer is one of those words where you hear it and you're like, sure, doc, I'll stop smoking. I'll change my lifestyle. I'll lose weight. Whatever it is, everybody rallies behind it and it's a call for action. So I always felt like I would be an oncologist and be able to help patients through those journeys. But then I came on to pregnancy and more specifically fertility. So I met patients who were pregnant and they were quitting heroin without help. They wanted, it's like an innate desire to help your baby, to help the next generation and to make yourself better for that creature that you're building. And that I thought was incredibly unique and an inflection point. A lot of underserved women that have no access to care only touch the healthcare system during pregnancy. So I felt like being there to help them change their habits and transition into a better lifestyle or a better way of living was, was going to be something that I would love to do for my whole career. And then I landed on fertility because learning about how important it was to be a mother, a father, a parent for some of these individuals or couples, and then being able to help them bridge that gap when they were unable to do so, I felt was going to be amazing. I always had the uh, kind of business angle and, and wanting to work on systems issues. And fertility is one of those fields that is very new. The first IVF baby was born less than 50 years ago, and the field is growing very rapidly. We're getting much better, but we're still not accessible to a very large segment of the population just because it's very expensive. So I felt like over the next you know, 20, 30 years, as my career develops, being able to be an active participant to help solve some of those access issues, while at the same time helping individual families grow would be an, an incredible career. And the more I get into it, the more excited I get. I'm so glad I asked that question because it's really interesting to talk to someone that you know does something that's very specific that so many people really have very little idea about unless you are um, studying medicine. And so I am really grateful that you you shared that because I think that it's just really interesting to see how your perspective changed over time as you were in medical school and how you were making that decision. Because I think for a lot of people that are studying medicine and are still unsure about which direction to go, I'm curious, I'm going to turn this into a question. I'm curious, like what was kind of the light bulb for you in your journey? Because I'm sure that there's some pressure that comes up when you're in medical school of, oh, I need to decide but like how much time do you actually have and how did you really, what was the light bulb for you? I think that you can always change your mind, right? So nothing set in stone. There's, if you start something, you have to start from scratch if you switch. So you kind of want to make the right choice, but ultimately it's better to turn around when you find out than to try to keep going when you know you're going in the right direction. So that's mm -hmm. number one. 
you usually decide somewhere between your third year of med school. Most people, it's a four-year degree. Third year is when you kind of like go around all the specialties. So you usually get a flavor of everything and decide. Some people know ahead of time. Some people have no idea. Some people think they know and they change their mind. And all of those are okay. You can always extend it and take more time. But for me, I always was the kind of person that would try to get everybody to quit smoking. I'm like, this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And, and I never could get anybody to quit smoking except uh, on OB. You know, people came in and they were smoking and I would say, all right, this is the best strategy. This is the best data. I can't give you these medications, but I can tell you this. This is what it's going to do for your baby. And you stayed on top of those women and I had a much higher success rate in OB. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. These are meaningful life changes. I'm not only making this pregnancy safer, but this mom's actually has a much higher chance of being around to watch her kids graduate college if she stops smoking. So that kind of uh, ability to change people's lives and and meet them at an inflection point where they're willing to make those changes uh, was what for me was the light bulb that that this was the field that I wanted to work in. Oh, I love that. Positive persuasion. <laughs> Win-win. Okay. Well, my next question is, what would you say is your personal and professional mission right now with the work that you're doing? So I'd say personally, you know, we talked about this before, but, you know, work-life balance is challenging. And, you know, I love my job. I truly do. I love seeing patients. I love the surgeries that I do. I love the business side of the work that I do. Um, spend a lot of time thinking about strategy at, at the you know network level for fertility. You know, thinking about new technologies that can make our treatments better. Thinking about business models that can make our treatments more accessible. So all of that excites me, and there's just not enough hours in the day. So, uh, and I have two kids who I love, and a wife who I adore, and. I love spending time with them. So finding that balance of being stimulated by my job and a high performer, and it's the kind of thing where if you do well and things are going well, people just want more. Uh, but at the same time, uh, managing at home, that's always a challenge um, and something that I work on every day and try to prioritize. And um, and I think, you know, it's it's a learning in process. Now I try to be around for my kids some things you can make, some things you cannot make. But So that's what I kind of work on professionally. I think when I think of 10, 15, 20 years down the line, I don't want to have regrets on the family side where I, because you can never go back and leave that again. So so it's thinking through in like, you know, short-term, middle-term and long-term goals. What are the things that you want to accomplish personally and making sure that you're carving out the time to do that and then letting your job uh, grow around your personal priorities. That's kind of how I think about it. And then on the professional side, you know, medicine is a lifelong career. You never know everything you're going to learn. I'm, you know, done with training in a month, but I still have 30 more years of learning and a lot to learn to be at the top of my game. So over the next, you know, three to five years is getting my reps in as an independent provider learning how to help difficult patients that don't have the most straightforward uh, clinical cases. So really complex infertility or difficult surgeries or, you know, multiple losses. So thinking through and helping those families grow. 
And it's not just the science, because the science, it's easy to learn, it's the patient side. How do you support a family in a way that does not feel overly intrusive, but where you're around when they need you? How do you talk to someone after they got pregnant after five years and lost the pregnancy? Things like that are really challenging. So that is the, the professional side that I you know, want to continue to develop because you can never be good enough and, and it will never be an easy conversation and every patient's different. So that professionally, there's that. And then the other side is growing my career. So learning from my mentors on the business side as to what are the ways in which we can make this more accessible to others and continuing to grow with, uh, with the field and, and incorporating a lot of the new technologies that I work on so that we can make the treatments better, more efficient, more affordable, and more accessible. So interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Something that came to mind when you were talking about new technologies is I know that you have been working with artificial intelligence, and I would love for you to share more about that because I think that we're hearing a lot more about artificial intelligence, and I'm curious how, what role it plays in the development of fertility services. Sure. So I, I did my, I came to artificial intelligence a little bit serendipitously. I kind of read about it and then I looked around where I worked and I was like, none of this is applied. A bunch of my business school friends ran off to start AI businesses, you know, with sensors that would monitor plants and let you know when they're about to fail. So they didn't, or, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, this is the future. Right. And then I looked in medicine and I was like, there's none of this. So why why are we not applying? And granted, you know, it's much easier to make a mistake if you're checking a light bulb than if you are monitoring a patient. But I felt like it was a field that we could definitely explore. When I came to fellowship, um, I tried to focus on using some of these technologies to make better decisions. You know, when a patient goes through fertility treatment for our listeners, you get a bunch of tests, then the doctor recommends a treatment during that treatment, usually it's two weeks of injections before the eggs are taken out. Do we have to make multiple decisions? Do we go up on the dose? Do we go down? Do we add more medication? Do we do a different type of medication? When do we take the eggs out? Once the eggs are out and we make embryos, which embryo do we transfer? And those are all based on experience. And we are subject to bias. You know, if I do something that makes a patient... Uh, have too much stimulation, the next week I'm going to be a little more ginger. If it's the other way around, I might be a little more aggressive. So even though we try to be as evidence-based, we are subject to our biases. And I felt like AI was a way to get rid of those biases and really base those decisions on data. And it's not just the thousands of patients that I've taken care of so far or the tens of thousands that I'm going to take care of during my career. It's hundreds of thousands or millions of patients that might be a lot more informative to the decision I have in front of me right now for that individual patient. And if I can make slightly better decisions at each given point for each patient, for that patient, most likely, but definitely for all my patients as a whole, I'm going to make better decisions that will lead to better outcomes. So that's why I came into that field. My thesis was optimizing one of those decisions, and it was the first time that technology was applied for that. And since then, 
Uh, there's multiple companies in the US, Europe, Israel that are working on, on answering some of these types of questions and hoping to bring products to market. So we don't have a decision support tool right now, but I'm pretty confident that in the next three to five years, we will have the ability to use some of these tools to make better decisions for our patients. Well, congratulations on that thesis, because it sounds like it really got you far and is going to take humanity in a different direction and in a better direction um, than we could have ever imagined. So I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about it and it's hard because you're like, well, I trained for 15 years to get here, so I don't want to be replaced by a machine. And I think that's the reaction that I often get from some of my physicians or the embryologists. So, well, if someone else is, if a machine is going to pick the embryos, what are we going to do? And this is not going to replace humans. It will replace humans in some functions. But to me, I'm like, I'm fine not making decisions that I'm not the best one to make. I want to spend that time in front of my patients. So, if, you know, one less hour I have to sit there reading through charts to make individual decisions, I can spend with people talking and connecting and calling you know I, I have way more patients that i want to call them hours in the day to call them to just check in how are you doing i know you got a bad result yesterday you know i'd rather be the one calling them so i i see this technology as giving me the ability to spend my time when it matters more to my patients rather than what needs to get me through the day I love that you shared that because I think a lot of people listening, when they hear AI, it can be alarming because of exactly what you said. You don't know what direction it's going to take. But I think that if you are a leader in the space and if you are, you know, someone eventually is going to do it. So if you have the the best of intentions and you're at the front, then, you know, I think we can trust that it will go in a good direction. And as always, as humans, we're always learning and making mistakes. And I guess this is just how it goes. You can't escape. <laughs> you definitely can't. Um, well, another question that I have for you, Eduardo, is what would you say is are some of the biggest fertility myths that you can share? Oof, there's so many, you know, and and I think that's the other thing. What's like the top three? Um I would say one of them is like birth control hurts your fertility. Uh, I think we hear a lot of women be like, oh, I was on birth control and I came off and I never got my period again. So my birth control messed it up. And that's not true. We've done plenty of studies. Birth control often masks fertility problems. So you're often started on birth control because your periods are heavy or irregular. And then you might be on it for 5, 10, 20 years then you're ready to get pregnant, you come off them and you're like, wow, my periods are not coming back. It's probably not the birth control. It's probably something inherent that the birth control was masking. So that is one of the ones that I I face the most. And I think another one that, that's really important is miscarriages are not your fault. I think we, by nature, and a lot of my patients feel like they did something wrong there's something wrong with them on their body. This is just nature, unfortunately. Most, you know, about a third of pregnancies don't end up in a baby for one reason or another. I'm, a lot of my patients carry a lot of shame around not being able to keep a pregnancy. It is a really challenging moment in their lives. So I think that sharing with them that this happens more often than they think and 
And that's why I go in on a lot of podcasts and on a lot of, that's why I do social media, because I think it's really important to build that community of people so that they understand that they're not unique uh, in a good way. A lot of people, unfortunately, go through this and they're not alone and that this is not their fault. So most times these are things that happen just by chance. And most times when you have a miscarriage, you won't have one again, but about 40% of people do in their life and we don't talk about it. So it always feels like everybody else got pregnant the first try because the people who struggle never tell you. Everybody else got pregnant naturally because no one tells you they went through IVF or this happened. And then no one else has a miscarriage because people don't talk about it. And I think we're getting better in the U.S. a little faster than in Latin America. But I hope that the conversation in five or 10 years is very, very different. And it's about how do we support each other through some of these difficult times that everybody experiences. And yes, it's great that some people get pregnant on the first try, but one out of six to one out of eight will not get pregnant within six to 12 months. And that's okay. And we have luckily in this time and age treatments to help most people with their families. So I think those are the things that I spend the most time uh, with. Well, you just really helped me get a much better understanding just sharing those numbers. And I think for anybody listening that might be interested or just wants to kind of get a different glimpse from a medical perspective, it is so interesting to hear those numbers, 40%. (laughs) Wow. And you're absolutely right. I think that you know, we live in a society where everything is a highlight reel and people aren't, you know, absolutely sharing all of their hardships. Um, But having conversations like this is definitely meaningful to be able to kind of shift the paradigm and, and help people realize that they're not alone in this journey. And you never know where it's going to go in the future. So that's another thing. What's the best advice you can give to someone who wants to do what you do professionally? I would say that tangibly and intangibly. Yeah. I think tangibly, what I would say is that it's not an easy path. It takes a lot of motivation. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, if you, if you want to, if you know where you want to go, that's helpful but you have to truly enjoy the journey. And I'll give you a tangible example. You know, by the time that I started my residency in OBGYN, I was doing, I was delivering babies. I was taking care of very sick women and very sick babies through pregnancy. I was doing oncology surgery on on women with GYN cancers like uterus, ovary, cervix. I was taking care of women with incontinence that needed surgery. And I was taking care of fertility patients. And I knew that I wanted to take care of fertility patients, but I still had to be the best doctor that I could be to all these other women. And I had to spend countless hours perfecting my surgical technique and learning about procedures that I have not done in the last three years from the day that I finished that program. You know, I'm a board certified OBGYN, but I spent all my time taking care mostly of fertility patients. And, you know, If you just think of the end goal of where you want to be, you will not work hard at developing those skills. But one, that's not the right way to go about life because you have to enjoy the journey, not just get to the destination. But more importantly, through that journey, you're helping people and they deserve the best doctor out there. So you still have to work really hard at developing every single skill you need to serve every patient that you 
come across with along the way. So tangibly, I would say you can focus on the goal, but you really got to enjoy the steps and, and make sure that you're you're working hard through through the whole thing. And then intangibly, you know, partly is that part about enjoying the journey, but you really want to make sure that you're going in the right direction and it is okay to reevaluate and turn around. So it's very difficult to know whether you want to be a surgeon until you're a surgeon, right? You can watch surgeons, it can be exciting. And then you get there and you're like, wow, I don't really want to be standing in an OR for 12 hours a day and be called in the middle of the night when I'm 57 and it's my kid's birthday. And that's okay. You're going to get experiences that are going to redirect you. I always try to be thoughtful about setting some time to reevaluate where I am and what I want to do so that if I am not headed in the right direction, I can correct. So I think for for people who are driven and motivated and want to get to a certain point, my recommendation would be to make sure that you set some um, set some checkpoints along the way every six months, every year, what however long that is, and and have people keep you honest or keep yourself honest. One thing that I did um, when I finished business school people people could ask at the end to to have people keep you accountable and and we had this whole exercise and i won't go into the details but the ultimate end goal is i had this group of four or five people that said yeah we will keep you honest so i wrote down my short-term goals and my long-term goals and i wrote up the things that worried me which were you know i got swallowed in my job and i'm not you know being a good partner at home with my wife i had no kids at the time or I want to make sure that I'm making time to do X or Y or C. And and then I send this like yearly recurrent calendar invite to those five people. And then one, it was a great way to catch up with friends uh, that were very meaningful in my life. Um, and it was a forcing function. But more importantly, that calendar invite had my short term, my long term and my worries in terms of goals. And they kept me honest. They're like, how are you doing on this? And how are you doing on that? And I did the same for my friends. I had one friend that wanted to donate 25% of his salary to charity. And that seemed really easy when he was young, but it got harder as he was getting older. And every year I call him and I ask him how much money he donated this year. And, you know, some years he does it and some years he does not. But at least he knows that I'm going to keep him honest. And I'm sure that moves the needle a little bit. So I think setting up a structure to keep you honest is is something that was helpful for me and that it might help partners. Absolutely. That 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 was a mic drop answer, honestly. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I love that you mentioned the pause, the community and the support and I love that you mentioned that last example because you're absolutely right. It's so easy to put goals into place, but it's harder when it's actually time to start taking action. And I think that you really just encapsulated that so perfectly, right? Especially if you are in a career that is so tough and there's a lot to balance. Well, Eduardo, another question that I have for you is what would you say is the most important step to take if you are someone that's interested in seeking fertility services? Where do people get started? If you are interested in finding help with your fertility, 
think the best resource is usually your doctor. It's fine to start online as long as you find reputable sources. It's fine to go to social media, but you have to be really careful to find a doctor who is board certified, putting out real content. I know I do that from time to time. Some of my colleagues do a much better job, much nicer looking platform. But we try to spend a lot of time educating women. And the reason is no one talks about this. You don't know that people are struggling with the same thing. So that kind of sense of community is important. And we try to share so that you don't feel alone. But ultimately, if you have an OBGYN that you trust, you can always start there. And if you've been trying for a while, so six months or more, if you're over 35 or 12 months or more, if you're 35 or under, those are times that you want to go right away to a fertility doctor to figure out what's going on. It doesn't mean that you need treatment. It doesn't mean that you have to spend a ton of money, but it means that we can spend some time learning what's going on, asking you questions about you, about your partner, about what you need to do to uh, understand what's going on. Is it a problem with the tubes or is it a problem with the sperm or is it a problem with the ovaries or the uterus or what is going on? Sometimes we don't know what the problem is and we never find out, but we have treatments that we can offer to help. So those are usually what I would uh, suggest that the first paths for women who are trying to get some help. So helpful. Thank you so much, Eduardo. I think for so many women that are looking and interested in seeking fertility services and understanding more about how their body works, those are great tangible steps to get started. My last question for you is how can people learn more about you? So the easiest way to find me is on social media. Harriton MD is my um, Instagram link. I'm working on a website, but like everything else, it's tomorrow's project, not today. Uh, you can Google me. Caroline has my email. So if you want to get in touch, if I can be helpful, feel free to email. I don't do patient consults online just for legal reasons. But if you're a medical student that's trying to find your way and need some advice, always happy to chat. If you need me to point you in the right direction, if you're in a city and are trying to find a doctor, Fertility IQ is a great resource to find one, but if you just want a personal suggestion, again, feel free to reach out. And if you're listening to this and you're struggling with infertility, just know that you're not alone. There's no shame in suffering. There's a lot of people around you that feel the same way. So don't hesitate to find someone in the medical community to support you because there are ways in which we can help you reach your goals, whatever those may be. Edu, thank you so much for being on the show. That answer is so beautiful. And I think that so many people are going to find this valuable. I look forward to seeing what you do next. I know it's going to be incredible. And hopefully I'll be able to see you and your family in person when we visit California. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to catch up uh, and, and go through this exercise and conversation. And I hope we get to do it in person soon. Absolutely. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.